Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. We're talking today about the H1N1 virus, and we're talking with one of the foremost pandemic experts, Regina Phelps. Regina, thanks so much for joining me again to discuss this topic. You're welcome, Tom. My pleasure. So it's been some weeks since we last spoke. Schools are open again in the United States, and the weather is cooling. What's the message now to U.S. businesses and government agencies regarding H1N1? Well, you know, I think the big message is to get ready. And I think the government has actually done a good job of raising the flag about that very issue. Kids are now going back to school. And, of course, based on the fact that the H1N1 virus really likes young people and where the infection rate is the highest between the ages of 0 and 25 years of age, once we get all of those kids uh, all going back to school and being in those classrooms, we're expecting a big spike in cases. And the cooler weather will, of course, just exacerbate that. Regina, what have we learned about H1N1 in the last few months in terms of what it is? Well, that's a good question. I think the, the, uh, there's some good news here, and there's also some uh, news that can make us um, a little cautious. First of all, the good news is, is that so far, uh, in all of the hemispheres and all the countries that it has been in, it has been a mild disease. So that's been a really good piece of news. Uh, we also know that it's highly, highly infectious and that it is now the predominant circulating virus around the world. And depending on which country you look at, it's either 95% of the circulating influenza or somewhere in the high 70s. So it is winning the race of GI wannabe, the influenza of the year. Uh, the second thing or the third thing we know is that it likes young people, uh, which is very different than seasonal flu and other pandemics that we've had in the last half of the last century. And by that, I mean it likes people between the ages of 0 and 25 years of age. It's where we're seeing the highest infection rate. It's also uh, affecting pregnant women at an alarming rate. And also, it seems to have a, uh, interest in people that are obese for some reason. That's a new kind of twist in the influenza cycle. We're also seeing underlying conditions such as asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cardiovascular disease being really impacted, and about 60% of the deaths uh, globally are for people that have uh, underlying conditions. But alarmingly, though, that means that 40% of the people that die of this illness are absolutely healthy. And the last thing that we've learned about this illness is that uh, the vaccine has been a little problematic in making. They've had a difficult time creating the seed stock, and so production is slow, and the initial number of doses coming to the U.S. will be much less than expected. Uh, they're expecting somewhere around 45 million doses coming out sometime in October, maybe into early November, and they've therefore had to relook at the priority list of who will receive vaccines. Regina, the flip side of that question, what if we learned about the virus, perhaps, that it is not? Well, you know, uh, I think the way you could sort of frame that is influenza is not predictable. So what we have really learned and what it's not is that we can't put our fingers on it. We don't know exactly what it's going to do. And I think that's the really big message for listeners is that it may, it is mild. It's only, um, uh, you know, uh, the death toll is, you know, 0.5%, so it's very small. But the thing is that it is very unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen. And so I think that's the key message. The thing that's also kind of unnerving about this illness is that it is unpredictable. We have humans in a variety of countries infecting animals. That's happened with humans infecting pigs in pig farms 
and not too long ago, last uh, 10 days ago in Chile, there was a case of humans infecting turkeys with this illness. So that is so uh, unusual and so is incredibly an unpredictable disease. So I think the thing to be aware of is to stay tuned. We don't know what's going to happen. Now, I know that you've traveled nearly 200,000 miles this year. I'd be curious to hear what you've seen in your travels in terms of good examples of preparedness and response. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've uh, spent a lot of time uh, with some of my banking clients this uh, summer in the U.K., uh, Ireland, and also um, in Singapore. And uh, the U.K. and Ireland in particular have gotten some really excellent educational programs. So for your listeners, if they're looking for something that they might want to show with some short video clips, some printed information, even coloring books for kids, the National Health Services uh, has incredibly great materials, and they've really promoted them extensively in the U.K., and those items are on our website. Singapore also has done an amazingly good job of educating their uh, uh, population, as well as providing great materials. The other thing is I've ran into is I've ran into one of my banking clients in particular has one of the best work-from-home programs that they actually initiated due to the pandemic threat, but of course, If you have a robust work-from-home program for any disaster, you'll be in better uh, shape because you'll be able to work from home more easily. Regina, can you tell us what that client is so we can see what they've done? Northern Trust. Excellent. Okay, again, flip side of this, you talked about some good examples you've seen. What are some examples that we don't want to repeat in the U.S.? Well, I think there's two things. Um, One is uh, panic. Uh, When I was in India two weeks ago, uh, the infection rate in India is really beginning to climb. And the media, between the media and just the government uh, response, the panic is just crazy. And so I think what we need to really do is to be very aware of that. I think education is so important. The communication is so important, but really minimizing panic. And sometimes people just only hear little snippets and the next thing you know, they're they're taking it to the next level. So I think panic is something we really have to avoid. Secondarily, uh, the media needs to be responsible in their programming. And I think for the most part in the U.S., we've seen really good, responsible programming. But at the same time, there can be a little, you know, alarmist in the nature of how they might run a piece. And so I think that's another thing that I would ask the media to be careful about. And then I think the third thing that I think we have to be aware of is that People that look at the spring first wave of the pandemic and think, well, gosh, we survived that. That wasn't a big deal. didn't impact my business at all, thinking that that's all that we're going to be looking at. And I think that would be a huge mistake. The first wave was very small, uh, insignificant for the most part for many parts of the country, and I think we're going to see a huge number of illnesses here in the fall. Personally, Regina, you've talked about pandemic preparedness for years now, and, and now that we're here, what are you learning from this experience? <laughs> it's funny that you asked that question. Um, I, when you f- ask me that question, the first thing that comes to my mind is denial is a powerful thing. Uh, most people believe that we really don't have much to be concerned about. And, of course, um, that's not true. Even though the illness is mild, even though the death toll is mild, I do want to say to all of your listeners this, that the healthcare system in the United States is not built for a large number of people all to get sick at once. We have no capacity for surge. And so what that means is, is that when we start having large numbers of people getting sick around the U.S., we're going to feel that in ways that we may not even be able to understand. For example, uh, hospitals are already looking and planning to cut back on elective surgeries if need be, change how they're actually doing uh, care, discharging people early. 
uh, because we're looking at this incredible surge that will occur even in a mild pandemic. So I think what we need to be thinking about is that we need to be aware of how we can take better care of ourselves and our families and our communities to really minimize the impact overall for the country. Final question for you, Regina. What today is the single best thing that individuals and organizations can be doing to prepare for H1N1? Oh, gosh, when you ask me only one thing, that's so hard, right? One thing. Well, you know, ultimately, I think it's about education and communication. Education is so pivotal. Most people don't understand the flu. They don't understand really what they need to do. So I think an employer can do a huge benefit to the community, to families and all their employees by really educating them and taking a responsible role. And one of the ways they might be able to do that is if your listeners are doing seasonal flu shot campaigns this fall, and many are launching them right now, they have an incredible opportunity to educate employees about good hand hygiene, washing your hands frequently, cough protection, you know, not not rubbing your hands with your face, uh, hands on your face. And so those key issues are so important because I'll tell you, when somebody has a needle in your arm, you have their attention, and a seasonal flu program will be a great opportunity for people to be able to educate their workers. Very well said. As always, I appreciate your time and your insight, Regina. I'm sure we'll be talking again before long. Thanks, Tom. We've been talking with Regina Phelps about pandemic preparation. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.